of more to come. At this time, I'll invite you to take a Bible to open it to the Gospel of Luke, where we're going to read in chapter 9, verses 1 through 36. If you're using one of the Bibles that's provided for you, this is on page 866, there in the pew, Luke chapter 9. Verses 1 through 36. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And whatever they, wherever they do not receive you, when you leave the town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. And when the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, well, send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we're here in a desolate place. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we're to go and buy food for all these people, for there were about 5,000 men. And he said to the disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. And then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him and he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah and the others that one of the prophets of old is risen. And then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. 
But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and there were, they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. And that's where we'll conclude our reading today. So it's a decent amount of material, quite a variety of things that happened, and we'll try not to be here till 3 p.m. this afternoon for all of our sake. And yet there's an advantage in going through some of the stories quickly as Luke is trying to put together an orderly account. We've kind of been saying this all along, that sometimes if we stop too soon, we don't miss some of the connections that he's making by the stories that he's telling in succession. They're mostly chronological. Not all of them are, but he has a purpose and an intention as he's writing to someone named Theophilus who is considering whether or not to become a Christian, whether it's really worth it to follow Jesus. So one of the central questions that this gospel is seeking to address again and again is to just answer this question for Theophilus, who is Jesus? Who is this person that you are contemplating and that you've heard other people are following and have committed their lives to and some people are disagreeing about and Theophilus has heard these varieties of accounts. Luke enters in to try to help him understand who this person really is. Now, we ask the question of who someone is all the time. We, we, we measure each other when we meet people. There's the kind of impression that people make when we initially meet them, and then there's the impressions that we get when we know them over a period of time, and then there's things you learn about someone when you can only learn by having a shared experience of like a road trip or some collective suffering, and you get on each other's nerves for a period of time. And so this question comes up again and again, but for Jesus now... He is in his earthly ministry at the absolute height of his popularity and fame. Crowds and crowds are coming to him. He he can go almost anywhere and be well-received. And so now when the question is, so who is this? Part of the, the way we consider that is, what is Jesus like when he is really popular? when everyone wants time with him, when all of the press releases about him in the local papers are, you have to meet this person. I mean, I don't know what your plans are tomorrow, but whatever your plans are, you need to cancel them and you need to meet this person. Because there is a temptation in fame and in celebrity and in power that changes people. And for Jesus, having a very humble beginnings with Mary and Joseph, and then a humble trade as being the son of a carpenter and learning the father's trade, when he initially starts off and has a a prophetic ministry, there's a sense in which it makes sense because he's sort of outside of all of the spheres of power and control. His family wasn't the most important family. They were an ethnic minority in the community. Rome was in power, and even the Jews who were in power under Rome didn't necessarily care much for Mary or Joseph or Jesus. And so he was able to have a bit of a prophetic voice because he was on the outskirts of all the domains of power. But now he's not as much on the outskirts. 
Everyone's talking about him. People seem to love him. They're willing to do anything they can and completely upend their schedule to be with him. And so the question is, so what is he going to do when he gains influence? What is he going to do when he gains power? When all the doors are open before him and a red carpet is laid out and he can now do basically whatever he wants to do. Well, for many of his followers, they had expectations and they had hopes of what he would do. That is, they heard about the Messiah. They were hoping that he would then organize them in some military force so that they could then make an advance against Rome and finally take back the nation for their own good. But almost everyone following Jesus had a different set of expectations of what Jesus should do when he accumulated power. And when we read a chapter like this, what should stand out to us more than anything is not the miracles it records, but the absolute humility that Jesus shows at the height of his power. When he really could have done anything and gotten a group of people to do anything for him, he takes that position of power and privilege and does not use it to harm anyone else or to get other people to abusive or harmful things for him. And it's a way for us to look at him and say, so who is, who, who is he really? And when he gets to do whatever he wants to do, what is he like? So if you're someone here who thinks you believe in Jesus, you have some questions about him, you think you believe in God, but one of the questions for you is, how can I really know that God is good? I can be persuaded in some sense that there is a God, that there's things I can't explain that happen in the world and it had to come from somewhere, but when I do see so much brokenness and so much sin, what's hard to believe is that if there's a God who's out there, that he really, in the core of who he is, is good. And so Luke is describing Jesus in such a way as to let us see what he's like at the height of his power and popularity and to see that that never corrupts him. And it doesn't fundamentally get him off track as to why he was here and what he was called to do. If you look up what a Messiah complex is, it's someone who has such a vision of themselves and their significance that they're so essential to the advance of some cause or another that they almost, it's a psychological disorder, that they then have a really hard time having genuine relationships with other people. And Jesus did not have a Messiah complex, which is ironic. He was the Messiah, and he didn't have a Messiah complex. So it should be pretty easy for all of us who are not the Messiah to not have a Messiah complex. To not think that we are so essential or we are so important that we'll just get people to do whatever we think they should do and however they do and we won't listen to counsel and we won't listen to advice and we burn through friends every three months because people are only friends in as much as they do or say what we want. Jesus didn't do that. (laughs) And he was the actual Messiah. Then those of us who follow him um, should not do the same. Well, what's the first thing he does with his power? Well, The answer that we get in the middle of the chapter is Peter saying definitively who this Jesus is. He is the Christ of God. They've been with him long enough. They've seen him do enough things that they say, this is the Christ of God. And even after that statement, if there's any doubt about that, three of the disciples get to have this amazing experience up on a mountaintop where everything gets transformed and Jesus shines bright and a voice comes from heaven and says, yes, this is my son. Whatever else you're thinking about him, no, this is my son. This is the Christ. This is the Messiah. Which means 
all of the popularity that he has, all of the fame that he has, it's all legitimate. <laughs> he's not faking anything. He, he's not promising one thing but doing another. He is the actual Messiah. He is the Christ of God who's been sent. He's been anointed for a purpose. He is the king. He's worthy to be followed. He's worthy that people would make sacrifices for him. That's what the disciples believed and they had it confirmed again and again that he's the Christ of God. And right after Peter says he is the Christ of God, Jesus says, I'm also the son of man. I am the Christ of God. In verse 21, he strictly charged and commanded them to tell no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things. So I am the Christ. I am the anointed one. I have authority and power and rule, but know me also as the Son of Man. And one of the ways we see that is at the beginning, he willingly shares and delegates his power and authority. He gathers his disciples together and he says, all the stuff that I'm doing that has the crowds coming to me, I'm going to empower you to do it as well. And you'll be going and you'll be doing these things. That takes someone who is confident in who they are and therefore is not intimidated by other people being given authority and power to do things. He delegates to them and gives them authority and power so that they can go around to various towns and villages and do miraculous things. Well, who does that? Who, who shares his authority? Who, who shares his power and shares his glory in that sense? Well, Jesus does. He anoints them to do it. We didn't read it, but later in the chapter, the disciples say, hey, while we were doing that, there were other people who were also doing amazing things, but we tried to tell them to stop because they weren't a part of us. And Jesus says to them, why did you tell them to stop? That's dumb. You shouldn't have told them to stop. Anyone who's not against us is for us. So he gave power to his disciples, equipped them and enabling them to do ministry because he is, in fact, building a kingdom. He is the king, but he's a king who's building a kingdom. And building the kingdom, that means raising up and gifting and equipping his followers to be able to carry on the work so that the kingdom spreads. And so he's a king who's willing to share his authority and share his power with his followers. And then even when he hears of someone else who's able to do it, but's not part of the right group or connected to the right family, it doesn't bother him in the least. Because again, he's not intimidated. He's not doing any of this to gain power ultimately for himself. He's doing this because he really came to serve, to seek, and to save the lost. And so all the things that he's doing, he's doing for them. The leader who is not like that is Herod. Herod is someone who's in a position of authority and uses his authority to abuse and manipulate people and to get all kinds of people to do things for him that he would never do himself. And Herod is perplexed by Jesus. Because <laughs> what do you do with someone who has authority and power and celebrity and fame but is not in any way corrupted by it? He's willing to withdraw himself so that he can spend time with his father instead of saying, you know, give me all the news, give me, give, you know, don't turn down any media uh, opportunity. And this happens to people where one significant event happens in their life and all of a sudden they're getting calls to come to New York and they're on the Tonight Show in the evening and then they're on Good Morning America in the morning and then someone wants to talk to them about this and overnight some people go from being completely unheard of to most households knowing their name. And most of them will testify to the fact that that is a huge temptation. 
It might, from the outside, seem like a huge blessing, but it is a huge temptation to wield that well. And then how does that person who is on The Tonight Show and Good Morning America and on a variety of outlets, how do they now treat their family and friends? Do they take this opportunity at their chance of power and just run away from everything and they don't have any care or concern for whom they've left? Or are they at the core the same basic person of who they were? When Jesus does this miracle of feeding the 5,000, there's no sense in which the crowds actually know what he's doing. They followed him, and the disciples pick up on the potential danger. They say, "Uh uh-oh, what are we going to (laughs) do? We don't have enough food for all these people. And Jesus says, well, don't worry about that. You're going to feed them. Which is, again, an amazing king who says to them, they're going to do it. He could have said, I'm going to feed them. (laughs) I'm about to perform a miracle, and I'm going to be the person that feeds them. But that's not what he says. He says, you guys are going to feed them. And they're saying, what are you talking about? What just like Jesus had told the disciples when they went to not take any money with them and not any extra clothes or any extra thing, he was calling them out to experience what the saints of old had experienced who could say in Psalm 27, some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but I will trust in the name of the Lord my God. And that's what he called his disciples to do. When you go out, go out and just trust me to provide for you. And here are now the crowds, and they trust enough in me that they've come to a desolate place. They don't know for sure where their next meal is going to come from. And now Jesus is able to show them that he can make provision for them in desolate places. Just like the people of Israel, as they left Egypt and were in the wilderness, had to learn through experience that God can provide for them in the desert. So now, as Jesus is announced and anointed as the new king, he is showing to them that he can provide for his people in desolate places. So he has them all sit down, the disciples organize them, the disciples distribute the food, and as far as we know, the average person sitting there had no idea how it happened. So can you imagine performing a miracle of feeding 5,000 people and not bragging about it? And not immediately adding that to your resume. You want to know what I did? How was your day yesterday? You want to know what I did? 5,000 people plus, because that just is accounting for the men, didn't know where food was coming from. And I helped provide for them in the desert. Wow. So Jesus is willing to empower his disciples. He's willing to do miracles in ways that don't immediately bring more praise or more fame to him. He's willing to do it in, in secretive ways. Yeah, he really is the son of man. He has come not for his own sake, but for the good of others. He loves them. And so he's doing what is good for them, not fundamentally what will serve his purpose more than any other. He is the Christ of God, who is the son of man. But then he adds another element to it. In verse twenty. Two, he is the son of man who must suffer many things. Wait a minute. It's pretty amazing that he's willing to delegate authority. It's pretty amazing that he's willing to not take credit even when he does miraculous things. But why must 
the Son of Man suffer many things. But as he instills it here, if you turn a little bit further to the Gospel of Luke, you'll see that Jesus makes this connection again. So if your Bibles are still open, you'll go to page 885. And Jesus is talking to two people after the resurrection who are confused because they had expectations of who Jesus would be and he didn't quite seem to meet the fulfillment of what he said he was going to do. And so picking it up in verse 24, chapter 24, verse 24, he says, this is the others talking, some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he, Jesus, said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus wants these two things linked, that he is the Christ and he must suffer. So if we simply think of him as the Christ and think of him as a special person, we don't understand everything that he wants us to understand about himself. And if we only know of Christ on the cross and someone who suffered, there's a very real sense in which if we just tell the story of Jesus, we could almost be trying to guilt people into having pity for him. When none of the gospel writers give us an account of what happened so that you or I would have pity for Jesus, but so that you or I, in seeing him in the cross, would surrender our lives and praise Jesus, that we would follow him. And one of the ways is to say how Jesus, anticipating the cross, prepared his disciples ahead of time. And said, at this very moment where what so many of you are hoping will happen is that I'll go and get revenge on other people. I'm telling you that I'm going to lay down my life. I'm going to suffer. I'm not going to make anyone else suffer. (laughs) But you don't have to do that. (laughs) You're the king. You're the anointed one. We we can see it in the tangible things and the miracles. Some of us heard it from a voice from heaven but they don't fully understand why he's come. That suffering is the only way in which the ultimate good can come to them. So that for him to come and not simply transfer information and not simply transfer resources, but to genuinely offer them eternal life in paradise with him, he must suffer. And so if Jesus wasn't willing to delegate authority and he wasn't willing to take joy in the success of other people, he definitely would not have been willing to suffer for them. But because he knew from the beginning that he came in order to suffer them for them, yeah, he was generous the entire time. He was the one who was willing to delegate authority. He was, one, he was the one who was willing to do miracles in a way that didn't immediately bring him fame because the ultimate reason for which he came was to lay down his life for them, to be their Messiah, to be the sacrifice who made salvation possible, to take all of his riches and all of his resources and to allow them to be given up, 
See, we can get into a debate when we go back to the beginning of 9 and say, oh, so he told the disciples not to take money, not to take this. Are we supposed, supposed to do that today? And we can have like a half-hour debate as to whether that's normative for us as followers today. And Luke would say, you guys are missing the whole point. Jesus is the one who gave it all up. <laughs> no giving up you or I could do could ever compare to the giving up that he did. Absolutely could not. So don't debate for 30 minutes about yourselves and miss the opportunity that you have to see how wonderful and unique and peculiar this Jesus is. That he is the Christ of God, who is the Son of Man, who was the suffering servant predicted in Isaiah 53 for us. I read a biography uh, in preparation for a trip that I'm going to be taking coming up on Nikola Tesla, who, if you don't know much about him, in the 1890s, as an inventor, he was predicting that the world would be able to communicate wirelessly with one another and that we'd actually have receivers individually to get messages from one another across the globe. This was before almost any home had landlines in them. So he was genuinely a genius, and the difficulty was he knew he was a genius, right? If you've ever met someone who is really smart and they think they're really smart, they're not usually, they kind of develop that Messiah complex. And so in his career, he was trying to get lots of people to fund various projects to do things. One of them was J.P. Morgan. And J.P. Morgan had already given him money and already asked him uh, and he got a big loan from him to build the tower in Warrencliffe to be able to be the first person to communicate wirelessly across the Atlantic. Problem was, it took a lot more money than they thought, so he was coming back and again saying, look, I just need more money, I just need more money. If you let me do this, I promise we'll all make more money. So in a personal letter then to J.P. Morgan, he wrote pleading with them and revealing some of his internal struggle. This is what he writes in February 1905. Let me tell you once more, I have perfected the greatest invention of all time, the transmission of electrical energy without wires to any distance, a work which has consumed 10 years of my life. It is the long-sought stone of the philosophers. I need to complete the plant I've constructed, and in one bound, humanity will advance centuries. I am the only man on this earth today who has the peculiar knowledge and ability to achieve this wonder, and another one may not come in a hundred years. There's been a long and painful delay. My nerves are not of iron, and all of this knowledge and ability may be lost to the world. Help me to complete this work, or else remove the obstacles in my path. J.P. Morgan read it and said, No thanks. And the personality of someone who writes like this is what any psychologist could tell you is someone on the verge of a mental breakdown. And sure enough, by September of that year, that's exactly what he experienced. A total mental breakdown. When you get to the place that you think you're the most significant person on the planet and the accomplishment of your will is what everyone needs... You're living in a very, very difficult place. So the biographer then writes, at the end, after he's done a whole assessment of his life, describes him in this way. While Tesla possessed a great confidence in his intense and wild nature, his analytical and imaginative powers, he may have felt disordered inside throughout his adult life. 
As we've seen, he could be highly charming and sociable one day and withdrawn and taciturn the next. Equally, Tesla had periods of great energy and enthusiasm followed by spells of depression. Hence, Tesla was driven to invent, to impose his ideas on the material world in response to feeling disordered inside. If he could get the outside world to align with his ideals that came from his mind, he would again have some evidence of meaning in the universe. And something similar could be written about so many of us who are committed to so many causes or ideas, but fundamentally out of an internal disorder and brokenness. And not from a place of overflowing joy or love or compassion, that we would be motivated to do what God is calling us to do, even if we're not entirely sure what the results are going to be or how many people will be helped by it. I think the more emotionally healthy person is someone who could say these words, which is a new song uh, written by Sarah Groves. She's one of our, I think, our best writers out there. And she's conflicted about what it means to follow Christ and the various temptations that come about serving him. And so she writes, is it time for a speech or for silence? Are you calling for peace or defiance? Is this darkening counsel or wisdom? Are we all perpetrators or victims? Is this childlike simple rote history or is it complex deciphering mystery? Is this blessing or ill-gotten wealth? Am I speaking for God or myself? Is this confidence born of a calling? Is this ego and pride before falling? Are we standing to fight for what's right? Or are we angry and hopelessly blind? Are we companions of Job or prophets of God? Are we not of this world or just painfully odd? Is it time for free grace or tough love or a little of all the above? Those are great questions for us to consider, especially all of us who are not the Messiah, (laughs) to question our own motives in the things that we do and whether or not we're following God rightly. But I want to conclude by reading one other thing from Alfred Edersheim, who is someone who was born into a Jewish family. And as he looked at the life of Christ and saw who he was as a Messiah, he eventually converted to Christ and believed fully that he was the Christ of God, who was the Son of Man, who was the suffering servant, by saying this. To the question whether this hope has ever been realized, whether one has ever appeared whose claims to the Messiahship have stood the test of time and of investigation, impartial history can make only one answer. It points to Bethlehem and to Nazareth. If the claims of Jesus have been rejected by the Jewish nation, he has at least undoubtedly fulfilled one part of the mission prophetically assigned to the Messiah. Whether or not he be the lion of the tribe of Judah, to him assuredly has been the gathering of the nations and the isles have waited for his law. Passing the narrow bounds of obscure Judea and breaking down the walls of national prejudice and isolation, He has made the sublimer teaching of the Old Testament the common possession of the world and founded a great brotherhood of whom the God of Israel is the Father. He alone has exhibited a life in which absolutely no fault can be found and promulgated a teaching to which absolutely no exception can be taken. 
Admittedly, he was the one perfect man, the ideal of humanity, his doctrine, the one absolute teaching. The world has known no other, none equal. And the world has owned it, if not by testimony of words, yet by evidence of facts. If he be not the Messiah, he at least has thus far done the Messiah's work. If he be not the Messiah, there has at least been none other before or after him. If he be not the Messiah, the world has not and never can have a Messiah. See the difference between Tesla's view of himself and others' view of Jesus. We do believe he was the one singular Messiah, that he was the Christ of God, but not because he exhibited wisdom which no one else had per se, or could organize people in ways that nobody else could. But precisely because when all of that opportunity came to him and he was declared the rightful king, he was the one who willingly suffered and laid down his life for the good of everyone else. None of us passed that test like Jesus passed that test. And so who is he? He is the Christ of God the Son of Man, who is willingly the suffering servant. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we thank you for the opportunity for all of us to have Bibles open, to hear others tell us about you, to consider ways in which we've experienced temptations and struggles in our own life, And when we come wondering if it's really possible to believe that you're good, to really believe that someone who could have all the power available to them and make any demands from people would really choose to love them, to be patient with them, to be gracious with them, to be merciful with them. And so we thank you for, through your Son, revealing to us that at the core, you are good, that we can trust in you. And so I pray for all of us here in the varieties of experiences that we've had and the ways in which we've thought about you, that you would help us to see you in your beauty, to see you transfigured like the disciples as fully glorious and powerful, but also to see you humble with your disciples happy to do miraculous things and not take credit for them, happy to extend authority to other people. Father, help us to be people who understand you rightly and fully, and not just in the ways that suit us or confirm our own ideas or our own biases, but that bring all of our ideas and biases to you and lay them at your feet. In your son's name we pray, amen. Let's stand as we sing our closing song.